Welcome, everybody, to Pursuing Justice. We are now part of Apple Podcasts. I'm Harriet Handela, and today we have two very special guests, Ken Hartman and his daughter, Aaliyah. But before we meet them, I wanted to mark a special milestone. It's just over one year since I created this podcast for Society Bites Radio. We invited and we've met 21 different guests, three exonerees, four staff members at the Innocence Project of Florida, a board member from the same organization, a director of a conviction integrity unit in Florida, three authors, an executive director of the first Innocence Project in the world located in New Jersey, a founder of a nonprofit to help those harmed by wrongful conviction, and its executive director as well, plus a group of young adults who have or had a parent in prison. On October the 2nd, we marked Wrongful Conviction Day across the U.S. And last October, I told my listeners that we Americans spend $2.6 billion on Halloween candy to say nothing about decorations and costumes. So I wondered that even though Wrongful Conviction Day has passed, I wanted to ask each of my listeners to think about donating whatever you can to your local Innocence Project. That's the only tangible way that you can help. There is an Innocence Project in just about every state. You can Google it. Thanks so much. In doing this podcast, I'm attempting to highlight injustice in all of its many forms. Closest to my heart is wrongful conviction. But today, I would like to shine a light on another kind of injustice, life without parole. Our first guest is Ken Hartman, prison activist, writer for Harper's and New York Times, author of Mother California, Too Cruel, Not Unusual Enough, Featured, also featured in the HBO film Totag Parole, a man who served 38 years in prison in California and was given his freedom by Governor Brown in 2017. Welcome, welcome, Ken. Thanks, Harry. It's great to be here. Really looking oh, forward to it. Wonderful. All right, so let's begin by going backwards to 1980 when you were arrested and given a sentence of life without parole. Mm. Well, it feels in some ways, Harriet, it almost feels like a different life. Um, it's, it's actually like more than 40 years ago now. And, um, you know, in some ways uh, it's, it's one of those things. And I think for a lot of folks who end up in prison serving long periods of time, um, it's, it's almost as if you have to really work to, to remember who you were at that time. I was 19 years old. Um, I had lived a pretty dissolute life. I had come from a pretty dysfunctional family. Um, I, I was, you know, uh, trying to find the best way of saying it. I guess I was someone who was not really capable of functioning well in society. And that was manifested in my everyday life. And, 
you know, drank every day, smoked pot every day, did harder drugs whenever I could get them. Um, you know, so it's, it's as, it's as if I was a different person. I've been 31 years clean and sober now. Mm. Uh, and I'm now going to be 60 years old in a, in a few months. So it's, it really, it really feels like another person, although it was clearly me and I certainly don't want to, you know, uh, you know, um, not accept responsibility for the things that I did because it was me. And, um, you know, and on a February night in 1980, I was out late at night drunk. Uh, I'd been up several days uh, doing methamphetamines and I ran into a man in Ramona Park in Long Beach, California. Um, I later found out his name was Thomas Allen Fellows. Uh, he and I got in a stupid argument, and in a matter of probably seconds, it seems like it was like a flash, um, he and I got in a fight, and Mr. Fellows was on the ground. I beat him to death. I, mm. I did do that, and I accept full responsibility for that, and I will feel remorse for that for the rest of my life, you know. So that's what happened, and that's how I ended up going to prison. Wow. Um, and how, how did you make the incredible adjustment to uh, the life you had and suddenly now you are inside uh, a prison? What was that, that tra transition like for you at such a young age? Yeah. You know, well, I, I think, you know, in some ways, you know, my young teenage life had pretty much prepared me for exactly where I ended up. Hmm. Um, I was in and out of juvenile halls, like the vast majority of people who end up in prison, um, the vast majority of whom, you know, are in fact guilty, like like me. Right. Um, you know, uh, I lived a dissolute life. I was in and out of jail. I'd been arrested many times. I've been in juvenile hall many times. You know, I'd been to counseling and, you know, and all the other things that that they do for troubled teenagers and like the vast majority of young men who go to prison i was between the age of 16 and 24 i was 19 years old uh and i landed there and i was surrounded by me you know <laughs> by the same kind of people you know it was like it wasn't you know in a weird way it wasn't that huge a transition actually which i know sounds probably a little crazy to hear, but that's kind of the truth of it, you know? Right. Yeah. Not, not, uh, I understand what you're saying, that the kind of uh, men that were inside were very much like you in terms of their yeah. beha behavior, their past, and their yep. b belief systems, right? Very, so, very much. Very so much, yeah. in that kind of environment, what what's the possibility to uh, mature to change, to grow up, when uh, w what we do know about that age group, uh, 18 to 24, 25, is that you are still very, very immature, that your, your brain function has not been complete and won't be until your mid-20s. So uh, what kind of a chance is there for young men like that to make some changes? Well, it's it's really really tough, and and I think uh, as anyone who knows about the prison system in this country knows, 
has a dismal record of failure. And, uh, and that's a big part of it. It, it, you know, there's sort of a, there's kind of a denial until fairly recently, Harriet, and I know you're up on the science of this because of what you've been involved in, but, you know, until fairly recently, these ideas that your brain wasn't finished developing until you're in your mid twenties was not considered a real thing. That's a fairly new reality yeah. that's been proven through science. It is. And I watched it every single day. I mean, I, I know that when I got into my mid twenties, in my case, because I was probably stupider than the average person, it was my late twenties really. But, um, you know, I, I made ridiculous decisions. I made decisions based on my emotions, not based on any kind of rationality. Because as I, we all now know, I had to use this, the emotion center of my brain to make decisions, which of course is a terrible idea. Right. And, uh, and, and, you know, and, and it results in terrible decisions. Um, it's the reason the military likes young men because young men don't think things through very well, you know? Yeah. So, so yeah, it's, it, the, the prospects for young men at that age are actually pretty poor and the system is not set up in a way to recognize that and say, we are dealing with someone who really isn't capable of making rational choices. That's the problem, I think. Right. Yeah, that's right. There, there isn't much in the way of rehabilitation coming from our no. criminal justice system. Now, um, you've written about um, many things, but one of the big topics that you have written about and I'm sure spoken about is something that you call, uh, is, this, is this your terminology or someone else's, the other death penalty? Well, I'm I'm pretty sure I coined that term. Uh, I'm not okay. 100% sure, but I never saw it anywhere else, and I wrote about it. And uh, I mean, I anyone's free to use it. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I haven't trademarked it or anything. But uh, <laughs> but I, I yeah. So so and what we're talking about there is this is unlike virtually every other country on earth. Uh, I was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. Uh, which is I called the other death penalty because the expected outcome of a life without the possibility of parole sentence is death. And I kind of, my feeling was, and this comes from the uh, death penalty abolitionist community, many of which, not all, but many of which uh, for a very long time uh, seemed to make the, advocated for the idea that the way to do away with uh, death, death by lethal um lethal injection or whatever other methodology was being used was to trade that for life without the possibility of parole. And for those of us who had life without the possibility of parole, we were like, well, you're really just tra trading for a different methodology, a different way of killing people. It's not that you're doing away with the death penalty. You're trading uh, lethal execute, lethal injection for a lethal term of imprisonment. And, you know, so I, that's where it came about. I had been in prison for a fairly long time by that point. My brain had started to work fairly well, and I was able to sort of think through the reality that I was living in. And I realized that, hey, I've been sentenced to death. That's the reality of it. And, and I found out that there were more than 5,000 people in the state of California alone more than 55,000 people in the United States. And, and just for, like a, I think, one of the best comparisons I can give that I think highlights the disparity of this between other countries, particularly our peer nations, at one point in England, the European Court of Human Rights ruled 
that if you're a member of the EU, you could not sentence someone to, they, could, they had a different name for it, but it, but it was the equivalent of what the United States has called life without the possibility of parole. They said it was an unreasonable sentence that all human beings should have some hope of getting out of prison. And they ordered England to resentence all the people in their prisons who had been sentenced to life without parole. In England, that amounted to three people. Now, if we if we kind of do the do the math here, England's about 60 million people, so we're probably about six times as big as England thereabouts. Okay. So we would have equivalent. We'd have about 18, 20 people sentenced to life without parole. We've got 55,000 people sentenced to life without parole. So I think that's a good you know way of looking at it from the perspective of how do we compare to our peer nations? But but maybe even worse. There's hardly any country on earth that uses life without parole, even countries that we would think of as being particularly harsh and have particularly regressive prison systems, uh, countries that we would refer to, you know, in, in the unfair and, you know, in sort of patriarchal terms of the West as undeveloped or underdeveloped countries. Uh, they don't use life without parole. I mean, it's a, it's a it's really around the around the world. It's kind of an un, almost unheard of sense. There's a very small number of people who usually have committed multiple murders or some other really, you know, really high end type of crimes. And uh, and that's it, you know, and that's not the truth for the United States and certainly not for California. Right. Um, I did a little research uh, today, actually, about this very topic. I was kind of curious to know where things stood with other countries. And um, maybe you don't know some of these statistics. I found them very interesting. Portugal abolished life without parole, and they were the very first country to do so, along with, followed by, I should say, Mexico, Spain, Norway, Serbia, the Republic of Congo, and most Central and South American countries. However, in other countries, England, Wales, France, uh, Germany, Denmark, and Norway, um, if someone's given a life sentence, there is a point at which they have to serve a certain amount of years, say around 15, maybe 18, and then they are eligible for a hearing and parole. Um, and that, we don't do that. That no. you get a life sentence, that's what it is. And the yeah. only country that actually life without parole, where it means life without parole, other than us, is Holland. I found that fascinating that Holland was the exception. But um, uh, so, yeah, what you're saying is extremely disturbing to think that um, we are not more progressive as we should be, as we should be. So, um, so then when you were in prison, you did not expect to ever leave. Is that accurate? No, I did not, actually. And in fact, right. um, I had come to the conclusion probably when I was had been in around 20 years, maybe a little bit less than that, I came to the conclusion that uh, it was fruitless to ever hope that I was going to get out. And in fact, it was painful and it was counterproductive in many ways. And I pretty much just came to the conclusion, this is it, this is my life. And I, that's when I really set out to do the best that I could to make positive change from where I lived, uh, instead of waiting around for some hopeful future that probably wouldn't ever happen. And what were those changes? Because you, I talk about you as an activist. Were you, mm -hmm. Would you consider yourself an activist in prison? 
while you were there? Um, yeah, like, I guess I, I mean, while I was doing it, I don't know if I would have considered myself an activist per se, but mm -hmm. I did the, the California prison system did lock me up in what we called the hole, what people on the outside calls often call solitary confinement or administrative segregation. I went to the hole nine times for political activities. Oh. So I assume that would qualify me as an activist. I would think so. What what were <laughs> what were some of the um, activities that they the prison system objected to and then put you in the box? Uh, well, uh, let's say I can, I'll give you a couple of examples that I think are pretty illustrative. Uh, one time, I testified at a federal trial that was held on the grounds of the prison I was then housed in, and I was asked by a magistrate judge at, after being sworn in to testify. He said, do they ever make you stand outside in the rain or the snow, in the cold and the wind to get your medication? They were, they were investigating medical procedures at the prison. And I said, yeah, they do that all the time. And he kind of looked a little surprised and he said, well, what if I was to tell you that an official of this prison testified under oath that they don't ever do that? And mm -hmm. I just said, without any hesitation, I said, well, whoever said that's a liar. What I didn't know was the person who had actually testified to that was sitting in the room when oh. I said that. <laughs> and, I, and I knew almost immediately because I saw this particular person's face turn bright red. And I thought to myself, yeah, that's the person who said it. And uh, a few days later, I was in the hole on a trumped up charge of inciting without any other thing, just inciting, which I've never could really figure out what that actually meant. But so that was one time. Uh, another time I was put in the hole because uh, myself assisted with some wonderful activist folks on the outside. Ha I wrote a thing called the Road to Rehabilitation, uh, the Honor Program, the Road to Rehabilitation. It was about a program I helped create at Lancaster Prison. And, and we, we sort of sent this pamphlet that we had created, had published. We sent it to every single member of the legislature the governor's office, every warden of every prison in California, and a lot of the members of the media at exactly the same time on the same day. And they put me in the hole for being in possession of confidential information. And the confidential information was statistics that they published on their own website that were mailed into. So uh, so there's a couple of good examples of, you know, they were just mad, you know, that I was sure. telling the truth about what they were doing. That's right. Now, you mentioned the honor program that you... Mm -hmm created. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is? Sure. Um, and I, you know, and I want to be clear, I, I co-created it. There were many other folks involved. I wrote the original proposal, but there were a lot of people involved at various levels. Uh, but yeah, it was called the Honor Program originally. In a nutshell, it was a, it, it sort of created an environment on one facility at the prison, California State Prison, Los Angeles County in Lancaster, California, where to participate in the program, you had to sign a contract that said that you would disavow racial stuff, drugs, gang politics, you know, all the dumb stuff that, you know, is rampant in, you know, the hyper-masculine reality of prisons in California. And it created a yard that was essentially violence-free within 30 days that prior to that had been having a riot about once a month. And, uh, and it was to this day, to the best of my knowledge, the most successful program of its kind ever launched in California. And of course, it was resisted enormously by the prison system because 
they didn't, I think they assumed it wouldn't work. And we were very lucky. There was a man named uh, Ernie Rowe, who was the warden at the time. He was a really good man. He's since uh, passed away and uh, rest, when he rests in peace, he was a really good man. And he, he said, you know what, let's give this a try. Maybe it'll work. And I think all the other people running things were like, well, this will never work. Because they basically viewed us as animals, frankly. Mm -hmm. and, um, and what they didn't accept was that if you treat people like animals, sometimes they act poorly, which is not really a shock to anyone who's ever took a first year psychology class. But for some reason, it seems to endlessly surprise people who run prisons. And, uh, and like I say, it, it became a model for the California prison system that all along was undermined and was really, really hated by the people who ran the system. Because I think they looked at it as fundamentally, you know, it was created by, by folks in prison and it made them look really bad because it proved that if you just treated people a little bit better, they'd act better. You know, <laughs> you you so. would think they would be grateful and appreciative mm. about a program that brings violence down, wouldn't you? Well, you know, I I think I so I think the issue here is it's it's kind of like this that so the problem I believe is is that the prison system has a perverse incentive. If if everything was to run perfectly and the recidivism rate was to turn to zero and people would stop committing additional crimes, the prison system would go out of business. Right. And and the prison system is a massive bureaucracy in the United States. It's well over $100 billion a year. It's about $15 billion, $14 billion a year in this state alone. And, and, you know, it supports a lot of jobs. It supports a lot of uh, industries who provide things to the prison system. You know, at the end of the day, it's a it's, it's not a good thing. And, and, it, and like all my father, who was in the Navy for 30 years, often said the first job of every bureaucracy is to grow. So are very interesting. Yeah. Now, the, the honor program, was it adopted in other uh, state prisons in California? Well, this is, it's an interesting story there. It, it never was formally adopted in any other prison in California. Oh. At one point, we achieved enough friends in the legislature uh, to, we had a, I actually, I actually wrote the, legis the uh, language for a bill that passed by bipartisan majorities of both houses of the California legislature that would have mandated honor programs in all medium and maximum security prisons in California. And the prison system behind the scenes convinced then Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger that we didn't need legislation. We could do this on our own. Those were their words. Uh, ultimately, they created a kind of a sham program called the Enhanced Programming Facilities. Did not provide any of the incentives to positive programming that we did with the uh, honor program. And they all failed within a year or two. Mm. So, And they we still haven't done anything like that to this day. We're talking about programs. Were there any um, prison-initiated support programs that you saw as beneficial? Yeah, I mean to be fair, yes. And 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 I think what I and my answer to that would be, um, there are in fact people who work in the prison system who are decent human beings. Uh, there are people who come in here who try to do good. Uh, it's a terrible system that is harmful to all human beings who encounter it, including the people in the suits and the uniforms. Um, but yeah, I, I ran into programs along the way that were initiated by the prison system, some of which were pretty useful. 
Um, most of the programs that I participated in that were actually useful were not initiated by the prison system. They usually came from well-meaning groups. In California, they're called community-based organizations often, uh, and they would bring in programs that were much more rehabilitation-oriented and much more about healing and, you know, and trauma-informed and those kinds of things. I see, I see. All right. Um, there, there was a, a I, I don't know if I'd call it a, a program, um, the, uh, the uh, conjugal visits, but we, we are almost out of time here. So what I would like to do, Ken, is have you return and talk to us again. There's so much that you have to say after all the decades that you've been uh, in prison. So would you be willing to do that? Come back? Absolutely, Harriet. I'd love to come back. Oh, Sounds that's like fun. great. All right. Wonderful. All right. So we will see our, uh, our, we will be with our listening audience, I guess you could say, uh, for next time when Ken Hartman will come back and be our guest again. And thank you so much today for listening. See you next time.